Many of you must have heard of BASIC, Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code, the programming language that came pre-installed with most microcomputers in the 1970s and 80s. In fact, if you studied computer languages of any sort during that time and even up to the late 90s, you might have studied BASIC at school. The development of BASIC is officially credited to John Kimeni and Thomas Kurtz, who developed it at Dartmouth College in 1964. But what not many people know is that one of the key members of the team that worked on it was Mary Kenneth Keller, or, to give her her full title, Sister Mary Kenneth Keller. In 1958, armed with a master's degree in mathematics and physics, she became the first woman to work at the Computer Science Centre at Dartmouth College, which broke its male-only rule just so that she could work there. In 1965, she and Irving Tang at Washington University in St. Louis were the first people to get a doctorate in computer science, so she's also one of the first women to do so. Mary Kenneth Keller didn't stop there. She went on to set up the computer science department at Clark College in Iowa in 1965, which she then chaired for 20 years. She also established a master's program for computer applications in education. In fact, she was one of the earliest advocates for women in computing and believed that information was no good unless it could be accessed by more than just computer scientists. If you're asking yourself, why have I never heard of this woman before? Don't worry, you're not the only one. A lot of people we asked hadn't either. is Nevertheless, a podcast celebrating the women transforming teaching and learning through technology, supported by Pearson Education, presented by me, Anjali Ramachandran. Many of the female pioneers in technology came up in their fields because prevailing social and political norms forced their hand. Unveiled in 1946 by Presper Eckert and John Morchley at the University of Pennsylvania, the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, or ENIAC, was used to perform computations during World War II. Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer. At the time, almost all the leaders and managers working on the project were men. I know most of the answers as far as the men are concerned. In fact, women were told that they could not get the professional ratings required to become managers. Women scare me. But with the war, there came a time when not enough men were available and women were pushed into supervisory positions. By November 1946, women began receiving professional ratings too. Six women were selected to work on ENIAC. Most had degrees in mathematics. Three other women mathematicians were actively involved in programming ENIAC, and one of them, Adele Goldstein, is actually the author of the ENIAC manual. At the time, by circumstance, women were encouraged to work together. I'm actually a, a member of something called the Dirty Old Ladies of Software that's been around since the mid-80s, and it's all the women who are involved with ed tech companies from way back. That's Mickey Revenant, a co-founder and director of New School Models for Pearson. She also helped launch the E-Rate program, which helps schools and libraries in the United States to obtain affordable internet access. Dirty Old Ladies of Software, the organization she references, is a professional networking organization for women who work in the business of education. 
In the latter half of the 1900s, when those six women were working on ENIAC and Sister Mary Kenneth Keller was part of the team that worked on BASIC, those kinds of networking organizations were few and far between. But the projects that these women worked on made a huge contribution to society, like many others before and after. We have shirts, and, and the acronym is DOLS, D-O-L-S. And, and uh, at one point, uh, in sometime in like the early 2000s, the men who go to all the same conferences, can we, can we, have, can we join your organization? It's like, uh-uh-uh. I wonder what it was about those women that enabled them to have such impact. Were they different? One of the things I think women do especially well is understand and tap into really universal needs, and especially the needs of children and families. I hate to say that it's a softer approach to what the needs are that require innovation, but it's definitely a more universal approach and one that thinks about how we are in relation to each other, how we are in our communities and our families and our society. So I would argue that, in fact... The road to innovation for our future is really driven by women and that the innovations that we may come up with may be smaller in scope, uh, may be less costly, uh, may be less engineered and more adapted to people's everyday life. And the classroom is a perfect example of that. That's the interesting thing about small-scale approaches to innovation. Very often, they're the ones that have the biggest impact. In a classroom scenario, the best way to do that might be to get children to develop those innovations themselves. Bethany Kobe is one of the founders of Technology Will Save Us, who are on a mission to spark the creative imagination of young people using hands-on technology products. Here's what they're doing to change the way kids think in the UK. We have a group of young people that are part of a, a, a club called the Future Inventors Club, which is about 300 kids across the UK now, and we are going to expand that globally, that participate in product development with us from the beginning. So we're not asking them what we should develop. We're actually putting them into scenarios where they're testing opportunities with us to ensure that the outcomes we're creating are, again, really helping them to engage with certain skills, really fun to do, and quite frankly, that they want to do for with materials that we can actually build experiences that are accessible with. So our products are, we call them play experiences because they have digital and physical products at the heart of what you're doing. But really what you're doing is an experience around learning STEM skills. Bethany showed us some of the products that they're building such as Electrodo. And so what Electrodo does is we have three different um, kits. One is the um, Squashy Sounds kit, which allows kids to basically make instruments and music using a smart controller and electronic dough. One is all about bright creatures, where kids can build creatures like dinosaurs whose eyes light up and um, fire-breathing dragons, melting icebergs. I mean, they're four to six. The imagination is great. But essentially what they're making is circuits and they're turning on lights. And then the last one is electro machines, where kids are actually moving motors with electronic dough and they can build all kinds of machines. And so each product has a little smart controller, which has the electronics that actually make the outcome happen. And conductive play-doh, so electronic play-doh. And it works with already existing dough, but the dough we provide is more conductive. So it makes things brighter, it makes things move faster, etc. So that's a beautiful way that kids can learn through physical product. 
which is a change in the oft-used narrative that the future of learning is all about software. But that's the thing. Learning through technology doesn't need to be just one kind of learning. And learning through software isn't just one kind of learning through software either. It doesn't mean you need to be sitting at a desk typing code into a screen all day long. Or if you are, then the way to do that is to use it as a creative pursuit. That's what Erase All Kittens does. It's a unique, story-driven game that introduces professional coding languages such as HTML to children. The Erase All Kittens team carried out extensive research interviewing hundreds of students aged 8 to 13, analyzing the most popular cartoons, games, movies and books, which don't pander to gender stereotypes, before creating their learning tool. And the results show. Their game has over 100,000 downloads in over 100 countries. And over half their players, 55% to be precise, our girls. So I think the founders, the reason why the founders wanted to start this was because from their experience, especially Dee, uh, she's worked in this industry and she found that it was very male dominated. And part of the reason was because even the way coding is taught, it is very dry and instructional and it doesn't really appeal to the way maybe girls learn anything, particularly education. So they just wanted to encourage more girls to get in this industry and that was the reason why they started this, just to close the gender gap within technology. Shwetal Shah is the head of partnerships and outreach for Erase All Kittens. She was just talking about why one of the founders of the game, Dee Segal, embarked on the project. Kids over the age of eight learn how to code through Erase All Kittens by building game levels even as they play. They get real-time feedback so they can see that if they drop parts of the HTML, like a semicolon or a bracket, there is a corresponding error in the game. So that is one of the main differences because we believe that if young people, we don't teach them the actual application of what they are learning, then they may not really be interested in pursuing programming. The other difference is also it's a real-time editable game. So every player would have a different approach to how they play the game based on their own creative thinking skills and critical thinking skills because they would be editing the code in real time which would then ultimately govern the gameplay. So it's about allowing kids to understand the principles that govern technology so they can learn to use them in interesting ways. And that's brilliant for kids who are self-motivated and have access to computers at school and at home. But how about kids who don't have that? In terms of the way my community works, above 70% live in poverty. Our students tend to not have access to sometimes technology or the internet, aside from a cell phone, when they leave us at the end of the school day. So school becomes their lifeline to connect. And so um, we're kind of at the beginning stages of connecting our students. We are not one-to-one, um, but we are getting there. We are kind of building from the ideology and from our belief system and the way we think about teaching and learning first before we just jump in and throw devices into every single classroom. Or in other words, consider the why before the what. Rafans Davis is the Executive Director of Professional and Digital Learning at Lufkin Independent School District in Ennis, Texas. She's also the 2017 winner of the International Society for Technology in Education's Outstanding Leadership Award. Rafans is pretty clear about what the role of teachers should be in helping different kinds of children learn. 
She believes that teachers need to put themselves in their students' shoes if they want to really get ideas across. It is honestly about making sure that we can provide opportunities to learn in multiple formats, but more importantly, also providing students with multiple ways of showing what they've learned. You know, whether that meant bringing in an outside partner to come in and talk to our teachers about what that means, or exposing this idea of learning through our leadership first so that it filters to our campuses. It's not just going online to look up a definition of what personalized learning means. It really does mean internalizing to think about who you are as a learner and how you approach that moving beyond yourself and then thinking about the students that we teach every day. And that's because information can be accessed at the click of a mouse or the swipe of a finger, more likely, for today's grade school children. Remember that video from a few years ago, actually? The one with a two-year-old child swiping a magazine as if it was a screen? So it doesn't matter what answers you teach children today. They'll just ask Google. It matters what questions you encourage them to ask. The memorization part of what we used to believe was important to education is no longer necessarily important in education. So recognizing that and then providing students with more opportunities to answer deep questions, to solve real problems, and then to think about, you know, where, where does technology fit in the scope of doing those things? But I think it comes first with empathy and problem solving first and foremost, and technology is somewhere within that mix. So are the old methods of teaching just not relevant anymore? And what is the role of students, the learners, in all of this? There's a phrase that's been used um, here in the U.S. in education circles probably since the early 90s, which is this idea of being the guide on the side instead of the stage on the stage. Because, you know, the traditional form of education in higher ed and then all the way down through kindergarten is that the teacher is the wise one. The kids have empty heads, basically, and you just pour knowledge into them. That's not the way learning ever worked, frankly, and certainly not the way it works now. So the idea of a guide on the side is partly directing students to information and helping them consume it, make it their own. But it's also attending to their needs as learners, um, this idea of metacognition. Johnny learns best when he's able to get up and walk around the room and, room and talk to himself about what he's learning, whereas Susie does best when she's in conversation with another person, whereas Andy really needs to get his hands on and build a physical model of what he's learning. The teacher is in a position to actually help students learn in all those different ways when they don't have to be the sage on the stage anymore. And instead, they're sort of moving around among learners, helping them tap into information and knowledge, but then guiding them and making it something more than just information. That was Mickey again. So it's pretty clear that no matter how much people say iPads are a kid's new best friend, if they're learning in any sort of classroom environment, then a lot depends on the teacher. Technology is only a means, after all, never the end. Here's Bethany from Technology Will Save Us. Technology will enable different ways of learning, better ways of learning, more distributed ways of learning, faster ways of learning, you know, all of those things. However, products in themselves will not deliver better education. It is an experience it has to be about relevant, engaging content that kids care about. Like first and foremost, 
And it has to be about teachers that passionately care about what they are presenting to their students in all different kinds of scenarios. One way of making knowledge relevant and engaging, as Bethany says, is by seeing it play out live. Hack days, where people get together in the same place to use different tools to solve a set problem or problems, are becoming more and more popular, partly for this reason. Not only does it train kids to become problem solvers, a useful skill for when they become adults, but it sets them on the path to becoming entrepreneurs by motivating them to start building new products themselves. Here's Rafrans Davis on a hackathon that she was part of recently. So we were actually challenging them to develop using um, Raspberry Pi and the Windows ILT platform. And the interesting thing was some of them actually opted out of that platform and went with Raspbian instead because it, it, it served their project much better. Some of them chose to use Arduinos, but one group, so they designed a button on the school desk that would be an emergency alert in case something happened in class that so they could send, press the button and send a silent alert to an officer or an administrator when they needed them to come to class without drawing attention. I thought that was really interesting. Another one was uh, there were a group of girls that said, you know, we want to talk to um, students who are hearing impaired. So they were working on a program that would translate um, American Sign Language into text and they could have conversations with their peers who were hearing impaired without necessarily needing the translator. The interesting thing there was that they learned more sign language by trying to design the program than the program actually translated for them. And that was also cool because they could still have those conversations with their peers. So you could say that placing children in situations where they need to solve problems rather than just learn abstract concepts is a much better way of developing emotional intelligence. But beyond that, emotional intelligence results in more well-rounded people who are able to deal with adversity better. Science supports this. In the 1970s, psychologist Robert Rosenthal and his colleagues at Harvard discovered that the people who were good at identifying others' emotions were more successful, not only in their work, but in their social lives as well. So, discovering useful applications of things you learn about can dramatically change who you are. It instills confidence, such a valuable life skill for children. And technology will save us, does that with products such as electronic dough, thirst plant detectors, speakers, synthesizers, gaming devices, wearables. Kids need to be and want to be exposed to all kinds of technologies. Some of them are new and some of them are really old. Some of them are science and some of them are math and some of them are engineering. And we want to create the most, what we call category defining range of play experiences for kids to essentially make and create and invent with technology throughout their childhoods so that when they do become adults making choices, they have a lot of confidence, a lot of skills that they can tap into to navigate that future. But we learn when we get older that confidence comes from making mistakes, which is the opposite of what we do with children. We have a learning pioneer in the business that develops a lot of content with us. And, oh, my God, failure is such an important thing. And, you know, I don't know any toy companies that are like, let's, let's help kids like make mistakes and solve the problem. Um, so that's really important. The hope through this kind of skill building through technology, which, like it or not, is here to stay is that young people will want to work on projects for the greater good. 
Shwetal, from Erase All Kittens, admits that this is in fact one of their driving goals. Our ultimate aim is to actually create future innovators and makers who would get a spark of inspiration by playing this game and maybe they could come up with solutions for major problems that the world is facing right now for example eliminating child poverty global warming pollution there was this recent quote which i read from the aspen foundation so they are also training young people preteens to use technology to come up with solutions to like create an impact at scale and they said that they want the future technologists to be millionaires in a way that they impact a million people so coming up with solutions that would impact a million people that is where our game is based around so there's hope for the future yet young people are really motivated to create real change and they're using different ways to get there but get there they will if the mindset that they need to take risks and build things is encouraged and even if they have to create their own jobs in the process here's mickey from pearson so the innovation mindset i think is incredibly important as we prepare our young people for the world of work that they go into cuz i'm of the mind that the jobs that they go into don't exist yet in fact some of them will have to make up jobs uh, they won't apply for jobs they'll create jobs and that the future of our world really depends on the innovators um who will find new ways to do things better for the good of all society we can help kids get a little bit of that taste of that when they're still in you know elementary school so much the better for all of us so if technology is a tool what does the next evolution of that look like uh artificial intelligence i think is really interesting when we think about the advances that have been made in ai where an ai assistant for example folks on the other end of that don't even necessarily know it's not a real person because they're able to do those nuts and bolts tasks in such an efficient way that they actually free up human beings to do higher order things um and i really see a fascinating role to be played in what i'm sort of calling you know your ai success coach as a as a student someone who gets you as a learner just knows how you learn best can help you stay on track can do little assessments to see if you're really getting the material can suggest a different way for you to approach it all the while sort of feeding data back to your teacher who ultimately is your guide on the side so if you imagine the guide on the side with a really handy very sweet and personable ai assistant in some ways you're seeing the future of what even a brick and mortar face-to-face classroom could be but certainly an online or blended classroom sister mary kenneth keller predicted the use of artificial intelligence in helping humans learn better nearly 50 years ago the women in today's show mickey bethany refrans shwetal just like sister mary are also truly forging new ground in education ground that we hope a new generation of teachers and learners will tread with passion and yes it's likely artificial intelligence will enable them to do so in completely new ways Nevertheless is a Story Things production. Writing and editing by the team at Story Things. Music and sound design by Jason Oberholzer. Executive producer Nathan Martin. Supported by Pearson Education. With this episode presented by me, Anjali Ramachandran. For show notes, go to nevertheletspodcast.com.